Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Deep inside a cave, the air smells of rock and carbon and time. An ancient ancestor is looking at the wall. They press their hand against it hard, fingers splayed, the flickering shadows giving the wall depth and movement. And then there appears a rust-red, pigment-blown outline of the hand. And then another, and another, and another. Our ancestor is marking time. Human and geological timelines intersecting for a moment. Jump forward to ancient Egypt, the sun beating down on the roof of a workshop, time itself beaten out by the metronome of a hammer against stone. And then out comes the revered pigment maker, brandishing bowls filled with a coloured powder, not the ochres and the browns and the yellows of the earth, but this time, for the first time, the bright blue of the summer sky, the blue of the life-giving Nile, the blue of the divine. A blue never captured like this before. In an instant, we're in an attic room. Victorian London, a young chemist is staring at his test tube. He's been trying to create a synthetic quinine, a clear liquid, and yet something's happened. He's made a vibrant, purple sludge by mistake. And then he has an idea that will change the world. Hello and welcome to Patented, a podcast about the history of inventions with me, Dallas Campbell. Today, it's all about colours. We have been transfixed by colours in all kinds of ways since the beginning of time. And as a species, we've embarked on a never-ending quest to invent, to conjure up new colours, brighter pigments, better dyes. My guest today is Cassia St. Clair. She's the author of a terrific book called The Secret Lives of Colours. Something about our love of colour and our desire to be able to make and use it and celebrate them in different ways. It's very interesting and very powerful. I think so anyway, and I think you will too. Hope you enjoy the show.
Cassia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to have you. I love your book. Your book is elegant. It's beautiful. It's beautifully written. It's fascinating. Who knew there were so many stories attached to colours? I've been and I've been thinking about how to kind of how to talk about it because obviously we're a, we're a podcast about inventions, and I'm going to say something like who invented colour? And you're going to say no one invented colour. But people did in, not invent colour, but they invented ways of making colour, I suppose, different manufacturing techniques and things like that. I want to start just by asking you why why colours are so important. Why for us as a, as a species? Like, I can understand if you're a bee, <laughs> like colour, colour, <laughs> yeah, need colour. Don't bees see in like infrared or something or ultra something? Well, yeah, actually, our colour vision, while it's you know, better than than that of dogs, for example. It isn't the best in the animal kingdom by by any stretch of the imagination. And yet we're obsessed by colour. We, we are. We, we bloody love it. We ruddy love it. Yes, and, and finding great sources of colour, particularly very vibrant, saturated colours, has really been kind of a human preoccupation. We have traded for better sources of colours. We have conquered countries. We have participated in industrial espionage. We've done all sorts of things to get our hands on better sources of brighter colours. I like that idea of like, we've invaded countries because we want that purple. <laughs> like they have purple. We don't have purple in our country. No, no, not not we, as bright purple. We, we need better purple. Which country have we? Who's invaded who? Wait, who, what? So if you look at, particularly in the Roman era, places that had brilliant sources of different minerals that were used for colours were kind of highly prized, even if they had really not much else to offer. Minerals like cinnabar, for example, which from which you could you could get vermilion, places that na- had naturally occurring great sources of cinnabar were taken over and then became really important to the Roman Empire. And in fact, you know, in the case of, of cinnabar, this was transported under guard to Rome. So, so highly prized was this colour. Well, and, and why do we... Okay, this is, I'm going to ask you some really dumb questions. Are these colours are for what? For painters or for dyeing fabrics or for... All sorts of uses, really. So, you know, the very earliest traces of, of colour use, you know, if you think about cave art, for example, we were using it to create patterns and illustrations and to kind of document the world around us mm. in our living spaces. Why exactly that was done is... is is mysterious. It's lost a lost a time. Was it just because we wanted? Whether well, was there a, a religious reason? Was it because we wanted decoration or was it something to do? We're not entirely sure. But you know, for Romans and cultures that came thereafter, they had they put color to a lot of uses. Yes, that was used for dyes that could you know determine different social strata. It might be for religious purposes, and it might just be for for decoration and, and to color artifacts that kind of thing. It is, a, and you talk a lot about that book actually about how. You know, certain colours are to do with royalty, for example, or there's certain colours that we see in religious iconography, etc., etc. I'm going to come into that in a moment. You said you mentioned something which just then about cave art. I think that maybe that's quite a good place to start. The other day, I was in the White Desert in Egypt, and I I went into a cave called the Cave of the Swimmers. I think it was called, and in it. There are loads of handprints all over the cave wall. Not like someone's put their hand in the paint and just splotted it, but it's kind of blown. So you get the, you know, the outline of the hand. I noticed all the colours were kind of reds and browns and 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 sort of rust kind of colours. And that, when I think of sort of Neolithic art like that, those I, you don't see ultramarine and purple. You just see those sorts of earthy colours that are kind of reflected in the landscape, I suppose. 
And I just wondered what artists back in the Neolithic times were, were thinking about and how they would make colours and what they would think of colours. So the colours they use predominantly, the, the colours that you see on cave walls, are the colours that kind of occur most naturally and that they would have found around them. So in the cases of those reds, they are they're basically what we would call red ochres or hematite. Hem- what's it called? Hemat- hematite. Hematite, yeah, which is kind of a, with a lot of colour terminology, there's lots of kind of overlapping terms. But sort of broadly speaking, you can you know use the word hematite to, to refer to kind of a broad family of pigments that are, are red and they, they sort of borrow borrow their red from kind of rusty colours from you know iron oxides that stain the earth basically and, and you can find naturally occurring deposits of usually quite rich red pigments in different parts of the world. It's fairly common. Mars. If you're a Martian, you're going to love Neolithic art. Well, maybe your caves are red and then the red wouldn't show up so well. You'd need another colour to show up against the red. On, on Earth, you know, there are lots of deposits of, of kind of red earth that are, that are iron oxide rich. They, they sort of were really widely used. So, you know, quite often you find red earth pigments were sprinkled in burials. They were used to dye cloth or to colour cloth. And, you know, the use of red ochre is has been sort of decreed as one of the defining attributes of kind of developing consciousness and mankind along with really? you know, use of tools. Yeah. Interesting. Why why would, would colour sort of influence the cognitive development, do you think? We don't know exactly the relationship with cognitive development, but archaeologists who look at this period see the use of the development of tools and the use of red ochre uh, as sort of coming in at the same time. And, and some archaeologists have given kind of equal weight to both and say these are this is part of the development of, of cultures and societies and you know the formative development of cultures and societies. And what's so fascinating is that you see it kind of the world over. Um, different cultures in very different places in, in the world are making use of red pigments that they find around them, you know, to, to decorate their spaces, to decorate the things they create, to sprinkle over graves and so on and so forth. And so this use of colour is clearly very important to them. And presumably, I don't know, presumably the, the fact that these, as you say, these are colours that are kind of reflected in the landscape. That idea of being connected to the landscape is is important in, in such civilizations. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to know. Looking at it now, you think that that must be something that's very important because it's something that's so striking looking at that art is that how the, the colours reflect the landscape around them. But then it's sort of a chicken and egg question, which came first, the fact that most of the pigments came from the landscape, or was it the fact that the landscape is so important and, and therefore they, they choose those colours? I mean, you also see a lot of black pigments that come from the soot of fires, for example. So yes, you, you do get you know black, black colours in, in landscapes, but then this is an artificial colour, as in it's, it's coming from the embers of fires. I'm going to talk about black in a bit, actually. We'll come to black in a bit, because I want to talk about Vantablack. We did an episode about Vantablack, by the way. Uh, if you don't know what Vantablack is, well, Cassie, you know what Vantablack is. <laughs> listeners, oh, trust me, if, I know. Yeah, I know you. I have some Vantablack in my house ages ago. They sent me a sample. Oh, absolutely fantastic. I mean, mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. But actually, you, you mentioned sort of soot. Soot is really black. Soot is as black as Vantablack, I'm pretty sure. 
like not quite but i mean it is really black i was watching a, a fascinating video on on twitter the other day of how japanese ink is created and, and they use kind of soot often to pigment this special kind of ink that they use and the, the sort of very painstaking process which has actually been in, in use for thousands of years you know the the collecting of soot the burning of kind of special candles or little fires you then collect the soot and um there's wonderful stories of soot being collected with feathers so they get every last little drop of this precious soot in order to to make you know beautiful soot black pigments this is the thing that's interesting to, to me is these extraordinary technologies that we develop in order to get color so if we call if we call our sort of hematite and black pigments that we get from the earth as sort of color number one i suppose i mean how did the ne- neolithic civilizations how would they have got the hematite? Like if I want to do one of those handprints on the wall using my paint, how am I going to make it? Is it just kind of grinding up rock? Or am I adding stuff to it? or what's it's, the- it's grinding it up and then it's mixing it with some kind of, depending on your, your on the way you're going to use it, you might want it to be a liquid. So if you're going to be, you know, for example, blowing it um, through a tube, you might not want it to be too dry. You might want it to have a little bit of a, you know, a liquid binding agent. You know, that might be water, something as simple as water, but it might be something a little bit more complicated, uh, a binding agent. And obviously binding agents have continued to to evolve. And now we use kind of like, you know, liquid, semi-liquid plastics and things like that. But, you know, really that's as simple as it is. You want something, you know, a colorant and you want a binding agent. And then the world is your canvas and you can do whatever it is you want to do. And what's amazing is they, those handprints, they've been there for like thousands of years without, I mean, obviously they're in a cave, they're in, they're in the dark, but there's still light that gets in. And the fact that they haven't faded to nothing and that they're still there is, to me, is just sort of mind blowing. Mm. Well, I think some of these, you know, some of these very early pigments that we might think of and perhaps they even thought of as, as very basic and would later on be replaced by more complicated pigments that were perhaps brighter, but more fugitive. They were more prone to disappearing when exposed to bright light or over time. And actually some of these, you know, simple earth pigments are incredibly reliable, are incredibly long lasting. And where the more modern, brighter, flashier pigments maybe fade over time, these ones are are incredibly reliable. And many of them are still in use. You know, we still use ochres, we still use red ochre and and yellow ochre, and we still use soot blacks. um, And we still use chalk whites these are still very important pigments they're naturally occurring and they've been with us you know from the dawn of time they, they were there way before we arrived and, and they will be there after we leave let's talk okay let, let's sort of move in actually while i'm in egypt let's jump from the neolithics through to the 18th dynasty um you go into sort of some, somewhere like sort of tutankhamun's tomb or any sort of royal tomb in egypt or something and you're, you're you know you can see this wonderful color palette of blues and golds and, and everything else can we sort of sort of move a bit? Like, how did how did we start beyond just sort of grinding up rocks? How did we start to kind of really manufacture colours that were beyond nature, if you see what I mean? Well, I guess the history of the human relationship with colour is a lot about desire. We want access to beautiful colours, and where we can't get them easily, where they're too expensive, where they have to travel too far, where the trade routes get disrupted, we want to create something that's more stable, that we have more access to, better access to. And so that's why we start trying to, human beings start trying to create more stable access to brighter colours. And with the Egyptians, probably, you know, the best example is Egyptian blue. 
which is this you know wonderful bright pigment that they used and you can see it a lot on little sculptures that they made in tombs they they used it to draw hieroglyphs um, it was kind of a, a really kind of multi-use color that, that, that they loved it was very important in their culture it represented the sky and the Nile which was you know incredibly important for their culture because of the growing season and also their deities some of their deities kind of had this blue aspect to them which was important kind of for, for religious reasons as well so they wanted to create a, a blue pigment and while they had access to other blues for example, lapis lazuli, these blues were problematic for one reason or another. They were either very scarce or very expensive or very difficult to use. But because they wanted a really wonderful, useful and easy to use blue pigment, that kind of led to the creation of Egyptian blue, which is something that they made artificially. They had to find a source of copper, which was usually like the malachite, and then they would mix that with sand. It would then be fired at very high temperatures. And then the resulting kind of glassy product, which was this mixture of the copper and the silica from the sand, would then be ground again and then again heated to very high temperatures. This was a, quite a complicated process. Yeah. Not only did the temperatures have to be quite exact, the first temperature is around uh, 900 to 1000 degrees and the second firing is around 800 degrees, but the levels of oxygen have to be relatively precise as well. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult blue to create and yet they made an awful lot of it and they made great use of it once they had made it. How on earth did someone figure that out? Like, how on earth, like, right, we, we need some kind of blue. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to get some copper and I'm going to do this precise thing. And then I'm going to do so. I mean, the sort of chemistry involved or the knowledge involved in, in doing something like that is immense. I mean, the truth of almost all these things, I often think about this when I'm making a cake or making bread. You know, the truth is there must have been some sort of kind of accident. Sort of George's Marvellous Medicine kind of thing. <laughs> but, I mean, exactly who it was that first stumbled upon this quite complicated process we don't know but actually there's a there's a very new blue you know now in in the in the past 5 years a very new blue was discovered again completely by accident by a chemist that, it's a really interesting the language here is really interesting the idea that you can discover a color you know when you're a kid and you go oh let's try and invent a new color and you can't think of a you can't think of a new color because it's 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 not like you go oh look there's a color over there i've never seen before or it when you say invent you mean like getting a new technique of producing a colour that we already know exists? Well, we might already know about it. We might have a, a name for it, but the qualities might be very different. So right. when you talk about a colour, are you talking just about the, you know, the kind of the, the chroma values? Is it just a, a very bright blue, which you could possibly get from using another, you know, another set of ingredients? But then you've also, particularly if you're an artist, you might think about how opaque that colour is. You know, yes. when you put it on yeah, yeah. A, a very dark background, for example, can you see the dark background through it or does it stand out because it's very opaque? You know, there are all sorts of things that go into the, the making of a wonderful colour. Quite often artists, when you talk to them about, you know, their, their favourite their favorite colours, they might mention something like the texture, how buttery a paint is will be really important to them and, and how it plays with the other colours that they like using. And so things that things that you might not think of immediately as being very important to a colour have great importance for, for people in different uses. That's really interesting. And th that idea of favourite colour is another sort of kids kid thing. It's like we like to discuss our favourite colours. Just whilst we're in Egypt, and then I'll move away from Egypt. I don't, I don't mean to be an Egypt bore, but that idea of Egyptian blue is really interesting. I did a programme about Tutankhamun, and we, I, w I was kind of going through some of 
Tutankhamun's kit, some of his stuff. And I found, I found, there was, <laughs> I, I didn't find anything. Actually, I did find some, but that's another story. There was a paint box, like a, a really kind of modern looking paint box. You know, like when you're a kid and you get little squares of mm. watercolours and a little brush in the middle of the tin and you open the tin. Kind of one of those, but but a little bit different. And all the paints were kind of unused. Some of them had some use apart from one. And it was that blue. It was a blue and it had been used like loads because it was like a hole in it. You could see where it had been worn away. So it was like you could look at that and go, well, you obviously like yeah. blue. That was his thing. How fabulous. What a wonderful sort of, you know, view into a life. It's slightly off the, the topic of colour, but my sort of favourite thing that was found in Tutankhamun's tomb was a faux leopard skin, where which was made out of linen, and the leopard spots were appliqued on. They were sort of sewn on patches. That's nice. Okay, so you, you mentioned lapis lazuli, which is, well, we're on the subject of blue. So we've gone from heating up copper. So lapis lazuli, just remind us what, what, what that is and, and, how, and how we use that as a, as a pigment. Yeah, so it's a semi-precious stone. You probably have seen it in, in jewellery, you know, in, in earrings or, or, or necklaces. It's this beautiful blue stone that looks a little bit like the night sky. The base is this wonderful dark blue colour. And then you quite often see little spackles of what looks like gold, but in fact isn't gold, it's fool's gold, so I'm pyrite. And then you also see what look a little bit like clouds, which are these kind of white occlusions in the stone. And this the the blue ground itself which is what artists really highly prized and was you know known as ultramarine this wonderful bright you know rich blue pigment that was beloved by renaissance artists that has to be extracted from lapis lazuli you have to get rid of all those little speckles of gold and the and the white occlusions and you have to just be left with the blue and that was an incredibly difficult process firstly because the best sources of lapis lazuli were not conveniently located right outside Venice where you know lots of the Renaissance artists were working they were located in you know very remote regions of Afghanistan so the you know big chunks of lapis lazuli stone would be brought up from the mines and they would be traded all over but for artists who really wanted to extract the blue they would have to get hold of of chunks of rock and they would then need to grind it down to a powder the powder itself is really disappointing. It's kind of quite greyish looking. And so you need to purify it to remove the blue. And that process is tricky. What you need to do is mix the ground up, rather disappointing looking greyish powder with something like a, a mastic or a wax. And then you then need to knead this rather like you might knead a bread dough in a solution of lye. And as you knead it, the blue part of lapis lazuli sort of falls into the, the solution of lye and settles at the bottom. You can then tip off the, the lye solution and you're left with, you know, the powdered ultramarine that you can then mix with the binding agent and, and use as a, as a paint. And so, so that's, it's such a great, I've always loved that word, ultramarine. It's not just marine, it's <laughs> ultramarine, supermarine. It actually means, it means beyond the sea, Ultra and mare, that's the, the, the two words, beyond the sea. So even Somewhere just in the word itself, beyond um, the sea. you get this, yeah, you get the sense of, of how far the pigment has, has had to, to come and, and how precious and special it is. That's lovely. And so because it's so precious and special and, and expensive and diff difficult to manufacture, who would be using it? Like who, like sort of politically, who would be using ultramarine in these, only the greatest artists, presumably, or, or the <laughs> finest clothes makers or... Well, I mean, particularly in the Renaissance, you know, it's not just about the artist, it's about the patron. 
So the patrons would want the works of art that they were commissioning to contain ultramarine because it was so precious and rare and expensive and beautiful. And so, you know, if you're being very generous, you would say it reflected their devotion. If it's a, if it's a, a religious piece of art, their love of, of religion, their love of their God, their love of the Virgin Mary or whoever it was that the, the work of art is depicting. But you might also say that it's kind of a vanity thing. You are showing by your use of, your liberal use of ultramarine, how rich you are. A little bit, bit blingy. Bit kind of <laughs> yeah you know there is a sort of a, a bling element to to ultramarine particularly to works of art that use an awful lot of it because you are showing the world that this is an incredibly expensive work work of art and, and you have spent a lot of money to create it and you know patrons often specified how much of the the canvas that they wanted to be covered in ultramarine there are, there are contracts that specify how much ultramarine should be used and patrons who might really distrust the artist, might procure the lapis lazuli themselves, and then might dole it out to the artist on a kind of day-by-day basis to try and ensure that they're not being duped, that the artist isn't going to use a cheaper blue pigment and kind of either make money off selling the ultramarine or use the ultramarine on kind of pet projects that aren't the patrons. It's really interesting that because, okay, I want to sort of move on and talk about the kind of invention of of sort of synthetic dyes. Does it still, do colours still have that sort of resonance. I mean, you know, middle class people nip over to Farrow and Ball to get their Farrow and Ball and they can have kind of any colour they want with their little, you know, you take your swatch of whatever and Farrow and Ball do it in two minutes. Do we still have that kind of relationship with colour, do you think? That, I think that we do. I think it's, and- yeah, I think it's different. You know, you, it changes over time. So there's, you know, with all these things, there's, there's fashion involved. So the colour trends change over time, but you do get some colours that just signal wealth. And the example that I that I like to use most often is if I see someone walking around London with a white coat on it during the winter, I know that that signals a certain degree of wealth, particularly if it's kind of a very fine, you know, wool, woolen white coat, because you are not taking the tube with a white coat and looking as great when at the other end of the journey as, as you, you know, you do at the start, because white is a very difficult color to keep clean. And so having an awful lot of very delicate stain showing colors, that, that's very difficult to keep clean. It's very difficult to keep looking fresh. And so that signals a certain type of wealth that you are prepared to buy clothing that is delicate, that's expensive, and that is white and that is going to show stains you know immediately we'll be back after this short break I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and this month on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm dusting down my magnifying glass to investigate some of history's most notorious murders and brutal crimes. Was Amy Dudley pushed down a flight of stairs to her death? Was it a quarrel, or was the brilliant playwright Christopher Marlowe actually murdered? And what's the truth about the Hungarian noblewoman who allegedly killed hundreds of young women? Join me for Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Let's talk about let's talk about the invention of synthesis. We've talked a lot about you know, natural products, if you like. And actually, the one thing we haven't mentioned is is, is animals. I mean, the, the fact that we get colour from beetles as well, but the particular colour is, is quite interesting. Very briefly, which beetles do we get which colours from? And then I want to move on to synthetic. Yeah, so the most famous one is, is cochineal. So this is Cochineal, a, that's the one, yes. It's red, isn't it? It's a red colour. Yeah, it's a very, very, very small bug that, you know, that there's a kind of family of them and some are native to, to Europe, but cochineal is most famously native to kind of Central America. And basically it, it feeds on a very particular kind of kind of cactus, probably pear, and it has to be kind of spread onto onto new leaves. And this is this was done um, What a faff. <laughs> a real faff. But this was done by Aztecs and, and Inca civilizations using a fox fur brush. Man, see that's that's hipster <laughs> taking hipster stuff too far. Can you imagine it's like, oh, sorry, yeah, those leaves aren't new enough. Actually, and, and that's not a fox, that's a raccoon. We need yeah, fox. Not good enough. Not good enough for cochineal. Because it's a really, cochineal. you know, it's, it's very precious. You know, you once once leaves are infected, they kind of grow this, it looks like a bloom, to be honest. You know, they're so small. They don't, there was quite a lot of arguments about whether they were in fact beetles or were they, were they in fact grains or, or bits of pollen. You know, there wasn't quite, no one was quite sure. But what it looks like is it kind of a white bloom on the leaves and when you kind of scrape this off and squish it you get this kind of bright red jammy substance of which is squished bug and 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 this is a very very precious dye and it you know it takes a lot an awful lot of beetles and an awful lot of, of leaves to create enough dye to you know color a beautiful piece of cloth say like a piece of velvet or something but as a result because it was so expensive it was only used for very precious textiles right. you know you're not going to be taking this wonderful expensive dye and then using it to color any old bit of fabric you want to color something really wonderful like a, a rich piled velvet and so you get this relationship between fabulous sumptuous color and fabulous sumptuous textiles that are fit only for for royalty. So we see all these wonderful wonderful pigments in 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 the earth and in soot and in animals and shellfish I know as well that all these wonderful pigments. But then suddenly we humans do like they get they do chemistry. 
and they can just come up with synthetic colours. And I know the invention, there's a story you write about the invention of mauve, which is kind of one of those, a bit like kind of Alexander Fleming. He's sort of like penicillin didn't exist and then he woke up and looked in his petri dish and was like oh look that's interesting and it's sort of one of those accidental stories that i i can't believe is true but perhaps you could tell it to us yeah so the story goes that william henry perkin was this sort of very young budding chemist he was 18 years old and he was working in the in the spring holidays out of his father's attic and he was actually not trying to make a color at all he wasn't interested in color what he actually really wanted to make was a cure for malaria he wanted to make a synthetic version of quinine which was a very useful you know very useful compound at the time it could only be taken from from trees which wasn't very useful but you know malaria was a huge problem for a country that had a, an enormous empire and sent troops and merchants all over the world they wanted better sources of quinine so he thought you know he was experimenting on coal tar to see if he could make quinine from from coal tar why okay hang on just pause that there's a sort of leap there how why would you go okay i need quinine what have i got oh coal tar like where how does why coal tar one of the reasons why coal tar was so exciting i think there are a few reasons there are are lots of reasons and and a chemist would give you a different answer but i believe that one of the reasons why it was so exciting is because there was so much of it about at that time it was a kind of very cheap byproduct of the lighting that was being used at the time there was an awful lot of it an awful lot of it about it was quite a complex substance and chemists were really excited by it because you could create lots of different things with it and it was believed to be this kind of wonder substance from which almost anything could be created huh okay so he thought well let's just check this out so what did he do with the coal tar so he was basically messing around with it trying doing various different experiments to try and create quinine which is a, a you know colorless liquid and he was in his father's attic one day during the spring holidays and found, to his slight disappointment, at the bottom of this test tube of, of coal tar that he was working on, he found a kind of sludgy, greyish, purpley mush, which was not what he was after at all. And I think maybe another chemist might have just thrown this out but he decided he was going to do a few more experiments on it and what he ended up with was a beaker full of of kind of a bright purple liquid again not at all what he's after and rather than just immediately throwing it away he decides to play around with it a bit further and one of the things that he does is he dips a piece of, of of white cloth into this beaker pulls it out and the cloth is bright purple And he realises that this is quite significant. He realises that he has created a dye, what seems to be a really great, colour-fast, bright dye. And not only that, it's purple. And purple dyes have got this incredible lineage. Tyrian purple, which is a a purple that was made from mollusks, was the preeminent dye of the ancient world. It was beloved by the Phoenicians. It was beloved by the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans. And so having discovered a new source of what seems like a very vibrant, colour-fast, light-resistant purple in his beaker by accident, he believes that he might have found something that is very commercially successful. Like I said, he's very young and quite naive. And I think that really helps because his initial approaches to the dye industry are not a success at all. The dye industry at the time is based on natural dyes, and they are 
not at all encouraging about a dye that is created in a lab by a young chemist. They're not really willing to try it out. But eventually he finds one dyer who will give it a go and they're off. They've suddenly created the basis for the modern dye industry. And this, from this one dye, will suddenly spring this whole family of colorants. You know, you get the purples, but then you get reds, you get greens, you get pinks, and you suddenly get this explosion of color just from his initial failed, quote unquote, experiments. Well, that's my, my question is, is that once you've got a color, I mean, for example, if you want to m- make green, don't you, you just mix... What do you mix? Yellow and... I can't remember now. Yellow and blue. Yellow and blue. Once you've got the idea of making synthetic dyes, presumably you can just make anything. You just you just mix different colours together and you can get the whole shebang. Yes and no. So, you know, we had been able to make, for example, green by sort of dyeing a piece of cloth in first blue and then yellow. You know, well before the creation of, of synthetic dyes, we'd probably used, you know, indigo and, and weld. So indigo is the blue and weld is yellow. However, what you find is that the the dyes react differently to light and to washing. So, you know, in, in the case of mixtures of, of weld and indigo, you expose them to light, the yellow dye kind of fades with light and what you're left with is blue. That's not what you want. You wanted green. So when you're creating new dyes, you're having to think a lot about the different conditions under which these things are going to be exposed and, you know, the expense and how well it adheres to different types of fibers. Because some dyes work very well with wool, for example, but don't work very well with with silk. So you've got to think about how these dyes are going to be used, the kind of fabrics they're going to be used on. And this makes the kind of the process quite difficult, particularly when you're working with something like coal tar, which is, is, is quite reactive and depending on the chemicals that you expose it to and the processes that you expose it to can create this, like I said, this whole family of dyes. And, and, and that is wonderful, but comes with its own risks. You don't want it to be reacting with soap and then turning a whole different colour. But can we say, I mean, 18, so 1856, William Perkin, can we, can we, in my quest to find the origins of things, <laughs> it, can, we, can we, can we sort of, he didn't obviously invent color, but he sort of he sort of there was invented a kind of revolution in the way that suddenly the, all these dyes that were really expensive and rare suddenly the fact that you could do it using chemistry must have changed everything really. It was a real step change, and because of his commercial success, although it took a few years and it took a couple of famous women wearing his particular mauve to make it a real commercial who success. Who wore his? Who? Which famous women wore his mauve? So the, most famously, probably Queen Victoria. So she wore a mauve dress to her. the wedding of her of one of her daughters, and this was reported on in the press. And as a result, mauve took off as the colour of the fashionable. And in fact, one or two years after she wore this this dress, there was an article in Punch magazine saying that London had caught the mauve measles because so many people were wearing mauve. <laughs> you didn't see anyone wearing mauve anymore. <laughs> you saw no one wearing mauve before. But actually, mauve was a very difficult dye. And, and one of the, the dye stuffs that had been used before was lichen, you know, or lichens. You know, good sources of, of very vibrant purple dyes there aren't that many of them it's difficult color to create but now you can create this artificial mauve which is very bright i mean and i really do mean bright if you look at kind of the original dyed samples of this kind of mauve silk it's a very strident color and that was very exciting to the audience at the time who might if you weren't that well off previously you might only have been able to get quite muddy colors well now you've got this relatively cheap inexpensive very bright purple dye which you can get your hands on for not that much money. Who the hell comes up with a language, by the way? Who, who came up with the name mauve? It's like, okay, we've got this purple. 
Well, we need another mauve. Like where, where does, if you find it, do you get to name it? Is it like a, a star or a crater on the moon or something? Well, he, he did name it, but he initially, that was his kind of second choice of name. He initially wanted to call it Imperial Purple after the, the mollusk colour of the, the ancient world. But he changed his mind and decided to call it mauve, which is a French word, because obviously everything sounds better in French, but it's the French word for a flower that is a similar colour. Oh. oh, I didn't know that. There we go. Fact. Fact. <laughs> That's a fact. That's a really good. And so suddenly we've got all these. So suddenly dyes and, and pigments become cheaper and more and more available. And, and just while we're on the subject of, of new colours, I we're, we're obsessed by black at the moment. And I've noticed you are wearing Vanta black. So just <laughs> yes. okay. We and I've done a whole podcast episode of Vanta black, so I don't want to go too much into it. But essentially, they they invent this new black that's the blackest black ever, and it absorbs ninety nine point nine 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 percent of all the light. So it basically looks like you're looking into a kind of a, a black hole. It was Surrey Nanosystems developed it, and it's basically car, forests of carbon nanotubes that are sort of propagated on, onto a surface, and sort of light falls in it, and it really caught the public imagination. I know it was designed originally for the space industry as coatings for satellites and, and, and that kind of stuff. But it sort of caught the public imagination. I suppose when Anish Kapoor, the artist, decided he wanted to use it and then sort of bought the rights to it and everyone thought he was a prat. And and, <laughs> and there was this kind of political backlash, this sort of anti, anti-Anish Kapoor movement grew up out of it but it's really weird how sort of political it got and then then other people invented even more blacker blacks than the blackest black ever yeah it's it's an odd it's an odd thing isn't it it is an odd thing and I think what I find so fascinating about the way that the story has developed um, with this kind of idea about rights and access to certain colors is that when you look back through history because we are now able to get our hands on almost any color that we yeah. want at the, at the drop of a hat. You know, color, we, we think of colour as being very democratic. But if you go back a few centuries, that wouldn't be the case. And artists had particular reputations. They developed particular reputations for their skill at producing certain colours because they might layer certain pigments one on top of the other in a certain way that created a very special hue or shade or tone. And that became part of their, their craft. And they would be very secretive about how they did this. They might only pass it on to a few apprentices, they might not pass it on at all. And the idea that everyone should have access to colour is actually very, very new. And the skill at creating particular colours was, you know, has been part of our of our history. Hey, maybe my Vanta Black s- sample is worth something. Maybe. Maybe you shouldn't have mentioned it because now you're going to get thieves <laughs> coming into yeah. your house in the dead of night after your sample of Antiblack. I think that I think I was meant to send it back. Actually, they sent it to me because I, I needed to borrow it for something. I can't remember why. I mean, borrowing does sound very different to giving. Borrowing. I've got a whole. <laughs> I've got a little secret museum in my flat of like things I probably shouldn't have that I was meant to give back or not meant to have at all. I hope you haven't got anything from Tutankhamun's tomb. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> got nothing. I've got nothing from Tutankhamun's too. Anyway, hey, listen, lovely to chat, Cassie. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. It's one of these stories and episodes I could just talk for all day about because you've got so many different stories. But basically, every color, the entire color wheel, you have got a story about. But we shall leave it there, I think. But thank you very much for dropping by. Thank you very much for having me. It was great to to talk about colors. I, I love doing it, and I could bore on for hours. So it's probably good that you've called a, a halt. Yeah, well, that's the other thing. I also, I want to get you back on because I want to talk about clothes. And the, Perfect. And the invention of, because I've got some thoughts on that. 
so we'll get you back on and talk about that if we if we can and golden threads generally i would love that perfect thank you thank you that's it thank you very much for listening hope uh, you enjoyed that episode hope you will have a new appreciation for the colours around you, the colours in your life. If you've enjoyed the show, don't forget to listen to other episodes. I hope you enjoy those too. Don't forget to tell your friends and family about the series. Um, we count on your support and love hearing from you about that if you're, if you're enjoying it. And also don't forget, as ever, if you've got a suggestion for a topic or a story you'd like us to cover, you can email us at patentedhistoryhit.com or you can just stop me in the street. See you next time. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love. And be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. While I still have you, very briefly, if you fancy getting all of the History Hit podcast archive and new episodes ad-free, along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch, download our app across Apple App Store, Google Play, and smart TV platforms. Follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe. There is thousands of hours of history on there, including a documentary on science in the Middle Ages with Seb Falk, and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race. As a patented listener, you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout. You get 50% off your first three months. That's patented for 50% off your first three months. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the Apple app.